When I wake up in the morning, love And the sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning, love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be A lovely WNHHFM 103.5 Just in Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations and ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest is State Representative David Morales. How are you? Justin, I'm excited <laughs> to be here, so I just want to thank you again for the invitation. It's good to have you. I uh, I have been a long time admirer of you over here in Connecticut. Um, tell us about yourself. Tell us how you got into politics. Uh, it's not often I get to meet people younger than me who are involved, but how did you decide you were going to join the state house? Yeah, absolutely. So. For all the listeners, my name is David Morales, he, him. I'm a state representative in Rhode Island and recently just turned 25 over the weekend. <laughs> so <laughs> now a quarter of a century. But whenever I talk about my own entry into local government, politics, and activism, I often refer to my own lived experience. So I grew up with an immigrant mom hey. who had to work relentless jobs, low-wage jobs to support my older sister and I. So it was a single-parent household, and that often involved my mom working those minimum-wage jobs. And it wasn't until I got older that I immediately realized that my family was really dependent on social benefit programs such as Medicaid, food stamps, and public housing, alongside the fact that, again, my mom earned minimum wage. So I immediately became engaged and interested in ways in which the government could further provide for families like mine. Hence why one of my main aspects whenever I'm advocating is centered around those social benefit programs and trying to make sure that all working people have higher wages, regardless of the occupation they have. Yeah, that, that is amazing. I, uh, happy belated birthday to you. Uh, uh, did you do anything special? Yeah, so it hurts my heart to say that I did not watch the Pawtucket Paw Sox. Instead, I ended up going to Worcester, Massachusetts to watch the Woo Sox, <laughs> which, which was a really thrilling game. So it was nice. Baseball, birthdays, good time. Okay, okay. I, uh, so you've been a state rep now for how many years? For three years. Three. And I'm currently completing my second term. And so, I guess, with all that's going on, how are you feeling about the general state of Rhode Island? Because from my perspective, at least through the social medias, it seems like there's been a progressive wave that's really hit y'all and seen some exciting energy and change 
in the state. Absolutely. I think that's accurate to say that there are definitely positive changes and progress that's happening in the legislature and even locally within our city and town councils. We finally were able to establish a pathway to a $15 minimum wage. We were able to get to cover all kids legislation to ensure that every child, regardless of immigration status, has access to Medicaid. However, there's still a lot of work that has to be done. We're in a human services crisis as it stands with people being rolled off of Medicaid, folks being confused about their SNAP benefits and an agency that is just unable to support people the way they need help. And you combine that with the climate crisis that we're facing. Uh, just last week, we were experiencing a tornado watch, a hurricane watch, a flood watch, all within the span of several days. And needless to say, our infrastructure is not set up to be climate resilient. So there are a ton of investments we need to make there along the way. And what makes me happy is that in the legislature, we have a lot more people who feel passionate and truly care about policies to make these positive differences. So I'm looking forward to being able to work with my colleagues as we do every year between January through June for some of these different legislative items in addition to the budgetary investments because it's all hands on deck between the executive branch and the legislature to make this happen. And what committees do you serve on? Yeah, so I serve on three committees, the Education Committee, Municipal Government slash Housing Committee, and the Internet Innovation and Technology Committee. Oh, that's a new one for me. <laughs> yes, it's a new one for us as well. And I'm excited about it because I'm hoping this give us an opportunity to really start analyzing and regulating artificial intelligence as needed. Mm. What, what concerns you about artificial intelligence? I would definitely say one of the immediate concerns I have is job displacement. Mm. Uh, I have noticed that there are local and state agencies across the country that are now starting to defer their Department of Human Services to depend on AI technology. As we know, AI is flawed. And when it comes at the expense of someone receiving their SNAP benefits or not, especially for some of our most vulnerable and elderly, that's where I become most concerned. And not to mention that AI inherently has a ton of biases that are correlated with race and class. So also something I just want to be conscientious of anytime AI is being used within the government, but also within the private market as well. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've seen a number of studies where, you know, you train the algorithm. And I think there was one study that I saw where the algorithm weeded out all the women from the workplace but it never used women as a determinant. It was just like, oh, if the applicant likes golf or is named Chad, they go to the top of the list and everybody else was getting kicked off. So that that makes sense. Um, yeah, and that, even then we're just talking about soft AI, right? If we were to talk about quote-unquote hardware AI, I become concerned about police robot dogs, for example. Mm. In the last three years, I've introduced legislation to bar and prohibit any local and state law enforcement from engaging in any contracts related to police robot dogs. Cause we've seen their presence in New York city and it's growing concerns. Cause again, what communities are going to be most policed and where do we see the stronger likelihood for there to be quote unquote misfire or for there to be mistreatment coming from AI. So a ton of questions we need to ask there for sure. I, I in my community last night we had two shootings and so anytime i think about public safety i think about 
allocation of resources, right? And so when I think about those things like police dogs and how expensive they can be, robot dogs, or think about this type of infrastructure, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I think about where those resources could be allocated to and what wraparound supports exist um, and what infrastructure has to exist to have these new technologies that, you know, are fancy and nice, but they don't necessarily get to the root causes of, you know, crime, poverty. Um, so, yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Um, how did your legislation go the last two times you've raced it? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it has not gone very far. Uh, needless to say, there are a ton of special interests, uh, most notably Boston Dynamics where they want to ensure that they have an opportunity to bring in police robot dogs to our communities because it's going to profit them, even though it will come at our expense. And most often than not, what's important to note is the presence of police robot dogs usually starts off as a quote-unquote philanthropic gift from the company. Mm -hmm. And then once it's been gifted to the police department, usually after a year, that's when they ask if they would like to bid on it. And that's when the procurement process starts and you actually see police robot dogs being formally purchased with tax dollars. So that's where I get the most concern is if we allow them to come in as a quote unquote gift, it will evolve eventually into a formal partnership. Mm. Have, has the uh, companies come out to testify against your bill or does it get to committee? Does it get to the floor? No, so generally it takes the form of written testimony. Very little will you ever actually see these lobbyists show up in person. A lot of the negotiation to stop these bills from moving forward usually happens behind closed doors, which, again, is, I think, very hurtful to, again, the democratic practices that we're trying to have in the House, because I always appreciate whenever we have any advocates or, in these cases, even lobbyists who are willing to show up in person and have these conversations with legislators on the committee. Now, you said that you're on the housing committee. I I don't know what housing looks like for y'all, um, but here in Connecticut, we've had explosion of tenants unions uh, combating rent increases and rent hikes. Um, what does the renter market look like for y'all? Oh, so it's scary. We are in a housing crisis without question. Right, Rents are skyrocketing between one bedroom, two bedrooms, three bedrooms. You have families of five living in a crowded one bedroom or two bedroom apartment because that's all they can afford. And more often than not, rents are spiking. People are seeing their rents increase by more than 20% on an annual basis. Wages are not keeping up. And there's a lot of stress being felt. We have more housing. We have less housing in regards to the demand that is there. And so more often than not, it requires the legislature to not only invest in the new production of affordable housing units, but to also take a careful look at the rents and what we're going to do to either stabilize them or have direct control over them. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of traction for a rent stabilization model or a rent control model. However, I believe that's where our local governments can come in and start enforcing some of those policies themselves if we're not going to do it at the state level. And in regards to our tenant unions, we've been seeing a massive wave of tenant organizing. And I think that's why this year in the legislature, we passed more tenant rights legislation than we ever have before, because we got to see a lot of working class 
tenants stand up to their slumlords, stand up to the corporate property management companies and ensure that they were actually living in safe and livable units that were affordable. Can you talk about a little bit about the process of an idea becoming a bill and then it going to the floor? Yeah, so in Rhode Island, essentially the way it works as a legislator is we have an idea, we bring it to our legislative council, we get it drafted, we work in conjunction with them to ensure that the language actually meets our expectations. And more often than not, what I do is I'll get a bill drafted and I'll take it back to the advocates because I don't want to introduce it unless the advocates feel comfortable with the language or that there's clarity around any questions they may have. After we have confirmed that the language looks good, we formally introduce the bill, which is then assigned to a committee. Once it reaches committee, we have a committee hearing date where legislators and most importantly, the public have an opportunity to testify in either support or opposition to the bill. Now, what is funky about Rhode Island, it makes us a little unique. Now, I would argue it is for the worse, is we have a process that is called, quote unquote, held for further study. So when a bill is introduced, it is immediately held for further study. So naturally, the question afterwards is, well, when does it get voted out of committee? This is the way it works. There's only two options that really exist. Either it goes up for a committee vote, nine times out of 10, it passes out of committee, or it is held for further study indefinitely and never makes it out of committee. But it technically doesn't die because it wasn't voted down, right? And there's no record of anyone voting on it per se, aside from just saying we need to hold it for further study. And so that frustrates a lot of advocates saying, hey, our bill was held for further study. What's going on? How can we get it out of that study phase? And that's when it becomes more than anything else really political. Well, we have a process here in Connecticut where the when we hold stuff for further study, we uh, people will make a study bill. And so you'll see a fiscal note to study something and they'll say, oh, it will cost us three million dollars to study it to which the program might Again. be two hundred thousand dollars and it's just like hold on you need three million to study how to spend two hundred thousand what absolutely no i agree i think it is absolutely frustrating especially when we see issues that are so obvious especially for people with lived experience who are actively experiencing the issue in hand so I would make the argument, you know, we should move towards a process where we don't have the health for further study phase, but instead we vote bills up or down. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, with our esteemed guest, David Morales, state rep in Rhode Island. Um, tell us about your people. To tell us about the people you represent. You represent which district? So I represent the city of Providence, the capital city of Rhode Island, specifically hey. the Mount Pleasant, Valley, and Elmhurst neighborhoods, which I would define as being working class, diverse communities. We have pockets of our Latino communities, our black community, hmm. and some of our more affluent community within the Elmhurst area. But overall, again, it is just a diverse neighborhood with people coming from different walks of life the district as a whole is about twenty thousand people total hmm. so a little smaller than your average state legislative district but one thing i really appreciate is that the people in the neighborhood are very much engaged more than off more often than not a lot of my neighbors are more engaged in like 
nuts and bolts of local government in regards to like wanting to get their sidewalk repairs or trying to get enrolled in a social benefit program, which I always ensure that I am of service and available to them. And so as a result of that, one thing I always take a lot of pride in is hosting a monthly community meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, so every last Monday of the month at Mount Pleasant Library, I host an open forum public meeting where we talk about a different topic each time and most importantly hear directly from our neighbors. So even before I get ready for session in January, I try to host a meeting sometime in November to give an idea of like, hey, these are the different bills I'm thinking about introducing this year. What are your thoughts? Would you be supportive and willing to advocate? Are there any ideas you think I should be working on? And I just I really do appreciate that engagement because one thing I took a lot of pride in when I was first elected about three and a half years ago was engaging people who felt like they never had a voice in government because it seemed inaccessible. Whereas now we're actively inviting our working class communities to be a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. What what would you say are the biggest, I hear that you said that one of the biggest themes is social programs, but what, what in particular are the main things that you hear from community members that they want to see action around? Housing. 10 out of 10 times. It is more than anything else. Housing in terms of, hey, I'm being displaced from my current unit. I have a family member who's having a hard time being able to find an affordable rental opportunity. I can't afford to buy a home, even though I have a decent paying job. So it usually comes back down to housing in terms of, again, the lack of supply, the lack of affordability that exists. And as a result of that, a program I have been thinking about introducing this upcoming legislative session. And right now I'm having preliminary conversations about it and would even love to get feedback from yourself or anyone else listening is a quote unquote property tax credit program for landlords who provide rents that are considered affordable, which would be 80% of the area median income or lower. Because one thing I hear from people who own property and rent, is they'll just tell me straight up, I have no incentive to provide affordable housing because the market is just increasing housing costs. So I can just increase costs all I want and maximize my profit. So if the government could come in and say, we'll essentially provide you with some tax relief, Will that incentivize more people to stabilize the market and say, you know what, I'm going to rent an affordable rate for potential tenants? Mm. No, that's definitely thinking outside of the box of how to deal with the immediate stress because building housing takes years um, unless we expect everyone to live in a tiny house to which that's not a thing. Uh, I love them. I would live in a tiny house, but... Uh, People shouldn't have to choose to live small. They should be able to have an adequate sized dwelling. Um, what? How did? How? How were you inspired to to come to this idea? Definitely a lot of feedback I heard from neighbors because when I introduced uh, my rent stabilization bill to say that you cannot increase rent by more than four percent on an annual basis. Surprisingly, but not surprisingly, I got some pushback, specifically from some of my own neighbors that I represent, who I would argue identify as being quote-unquote liberal or even progressive. And they said, like, hey, you know, you understand that property tax is going up on an annual basis. Like, one of the main reasons why I increased my rent is to try to keep up with that. Mm. So, again, I listened to the feedback, and I also spoke with some of my legislative colleagues. And I was really bummed to learn that there wasn't a lot of folks within the legislature that were very supportive of rent stabilization model. So going back to the idea that, again, building housing takes years, 
and there's tons of rules and regulations around it in regards to zoning and the actual development, I immediately thought of, well, we have a property tax relief program for seniors. Mm-hmm. If you're a senior of lower income, we want to make sure you stay in your home. But we do provide some form of a property tax relief. So I started thinking, what if we just applied that same logic, but for people who are landlords? And again, I know people who are landlords who actually rent at affordable rates, but they, on, they honestly, I'll say more than anything else, do it out of the quote-unquote goodness of their heart. If they wanted to, they could take that same unit and double the rent and find a tenant within two weeks. But thankfully, they don't do that. But you shouldn't have to find yourself in a situation where you get lucky and secure a kind-hearted landlord. Right. So again, my thought process is what can the government as a whole do to incentivize this process? Now, don't get me wrong. This will take a lot of compliance, regulations and oversight because there are definitely going to be opportunities like any program that exists where there could be holes, there could be loopholes and there could be folks who abuse the program. But again, I would like to think that if we construct this in coordination with the Division of Taxation and our Department of Housing, this could be a very successful program. We have a lot more "quote unquote" mom and pop landlords that aren't raising rents on vulnerable people. I, <clears throat> we, here in in New Haven, the city that I'm in right now, we, uh, there are three major landlords, and between the three of them, they own probably seventeen hundred units. <laughs> And so, you know, as you talk about mom and pop landlords, I, I think it's important. I, uh, you know, there are people who don't have traditional jobs who end up having a rental property as their retirement option. There are people who, um, you know, live in a multifamily and the way that they upkeep their house is through a multifamily uh, rental and so it's a very interesting idea of talking about these other landlords outside of these industrial landlords that we usually think about. Um, yeah, and I say that specifically because I'll speak for Providence specifically. When you look at how dense our housing is, we have a ton of multifamily homes. More yeah. often than not, they're owner-occupied multifamily homes. Where, And I'm a perfect example of that. I'm a tenant. I live on the first floor. My landlord lives on the second floor. And there is a lot of that that goes on throughout our city. Or as you mentioned, you know, perhaps there's a working person who owns two homes, right? One of them, which is their rental unit that they use for quote unquote passive income. The other one is the one where they actually live. But in terms of the corporate landlords, I'm glad you brought that up briefly, because I do think we need to specifically look at how we can cap the amount of property that any property management company can own. The issue there is very similar to what we talked about before. There are a ton of loopholes that could potentially exist, right? You develop a new LLC. (laughs) Therefore, you say this is a different company. You try to revert back to the Constitution and say, hey, this is infringing on my property rights. But this is an idea I've been actively looking at as well, is how can we set a limit by the amount of property and units that a property management company can hold? Because we have that ongoing issue here where we have neighborhoods being bought out by property management companies and are then being diverted directly into like student housing, specifically Mm -hmm. around some of the wealthier private colleges, because they know that the parents of the students will be able to shell out the money necessary. And again, that will come at the expense of displacing families and folks who have actually lived in the neighborhood. 
Mm. Now it 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 it's a prolific problem. What what are your feelings on the federal government and its responsibility in terms of housing? <laughs> Ooh, the federal government has a ton of responsibility. The question is, will they act? Is there political will? Will we ever get through the gridlock in Congress? In a dream world, we lift the Fair Clock Amendment in relation to public housing restrictions. We need to go towards a model where the federal government is directly coming in and providing municipalities and states with the resources to build public housing units. Public housing units that are predominantly subsidized for lower income and working class people and families. That would go a very long way to ensure that more people are housed. Similarly, when we are talking about our unhoused crisis, the federal government has a responsibility to step in, take a look at the federal budget, reallocate some of the funds within the defense industry and start reallocating those fundings directly for wraparound services. Wraparound services in regards to what I would argue being pallet homes and shelters where people have access to a restroom, they have access to a kitchen, they have access to a room. Dignified housing alongside a social worker that can quote unquote help them get back on their feet regardless of what struggles they're experiencing. Those require federal investments and federal responses. More often than not, it is fully dependent on the municipal governments and the state governments to take on this responsibility as they should. However, oftentimes our local and municipal governments will say our budgets are strained. We cannot afford to do this at the moment. So we continue to ignore and neglect the issue. So I would argue that the leadership starts locally, but there's also leadership that needs to happen federally. Mm. <clears throat> no, I, I, I totally agree. I, uh, it's wild to me that we're waiting on public private partnerships to build housing when it's just like okay we all know this is an issue and we all know that if we build affordable housing people are going to pay rent because they need somewhere to live but um again these are not radical ideas by any means right <laughs> they do not require full-on study conditions these are ideas that we can fund and make a reality i uh <clears throat> i uh the climate march was just happened in New York City this past weekend, and um, you were talking about biblical uh, signs of climate change out in Rhode Island that I didn't realize were happening. What, I guess, before getting into the issues, what is giving you? Uh, are you feeling hopeful about the the climate emergency? Are you feeling? uh down like what what are your general feelings around climate in my, this time my concern in regards to the climate crisis is the fact that we're not moving fast enough mm. the urgency is there in terms of the headlines we recognize the forest fires that have been happening across the country we recognize there is an upsurge in hurricanes <laughs> tornadoes flooding but what is being done in response the news cycle is very quick to identify the issues. However, in response, I don't think the government, specifically, again, looking at the federal level, that we're moving quick enough to provide support and resources to our local communities so they are climate resilient. And again, I'm talking about basic infrastructure, making sure our sewage isn't backed up, making sure that we have bridges that aren't going to collapse, ensuring that we're investing in renewable energy resources between solar and wind, yet and still 
you see the federal government approving more and more permits for oil drilling, for hydraulic fracturing. So despite seeing all the warning signs, it still feels like we're moving backwards. And I understand the Biden administration about two weeks ago did announce that they were going to put a pause on accepting any new permits related to oil drilling. And again, I'm going to have my fingers crossed and I'm going to hold my breath. And I really hope that is something that we see. But we're at a point right now where we cannot just depend on stopping bad practices. We need to invest in ensuring that we're working towards climate resiliency. But because the fossil fuel industry has such an influence at the federal level, we continuously run into the gridlock. And what makes matters worse is you have rhetoric coming from right-wing politicians still claiming that this is a hoax or it's being widely exaggerated, even though we literally have had thousands of deaths internationally as a result of climate change. And God forbid that domestically it's still between the hundreds of people within that range, but very soon we're going to see climate catastrophes that wipe out thousands to hundreds of thousands of people in our communities. And that's where I'm concerned about, again, our lack of urgency in relation to being able to actually address climate change and the crisis we're facing. Mm. No, I, uh, it, uh, being coastal communities, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time. It, the, the waters are right next to us, right? Um, what gives you hope? I would definitely say the energy from fellow advocates and activists. Mm-hmm. The fact that there are people who are continuously in the fight because we recognize that a better world is possible, but more specifically, we're willing to organize for it. Because it's not easy. We're up against interests, special interests, who have access to resources, money, and wealth. Inherently, what we have are our voices. We have the ability to disrupt. We have the ability to protest. We have the ability to organize amongst our circles and try to build a wider movement. And of course, that is much easier said than done. Burnout is real. (laughs) Mental health is a reality within our advocacy circles. And so we need to be able to take care of each other. But every time we have a gathering of advocates who feel very passionate and strongly about an issue, that gives me hope knowing that we still have communities of people, and again, I'll speak for Rhode Island specifically, who want to see a better Rhode Island where people are paid a dignified wage and folks can actually have a roof over their, over their heads. Mm. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WN. HHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer. Our esteemed guest, David Morales, state rep in Rhode Island. Um, now, I heard a rumor that uh, well, when you're not busy doing suplexes in this house, uh, that you're doing them elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the part where I share with everyone that I am proud to be the reigning defending professional wrestling hype champion for the Renegade Wrestling Alliance. So yes, the rumors are true. I wear spandex on the weekends and I compete in the wrestling ring as what I would argue to be the biggest villain in the industry. (laughs) How did you... uh get into wrestling how like what 
So I've been a lifelong fan. I grew up watching wrestling, uh, mm. specifically Friday Night Smackdown, because I did not have access to cable television. Mm. My favorite wrestler growing up was Rey Mysterio, without question, because he wore a mask, very similar to Spider-Man, and he was from Latino, Mexicano roots, just like myself. And it's a passion and a love I've always had, because professional wrestling is literally athleticism, theater, and humor all wrapped into one production. And so my love for wrestling has stayed with me throughout my adolescence and clearly throughout my adulthood. And it was about two and a half years ago that the independent wrestling organization, the Renegade Wrestling Alliance, was hosting their first show since the start of the pandemic. Mm. And they had asked me, as the local politician of the area for the Mount Pleasant Little League, if I would be willing to attend the show and say a few words to the fans and thank them for coming and supporting the local town. And so I said, absolutely, say no more. Y'all know I'm a big fan of wrestling, of course. And I get there the day of the show, and the promoter asks me, would you be willing to take a body slam from our world champion? <laughs> Their world champion was like the main villain at the, town, villain at the time, the riot Kellen Thomas. And I said, absolutely, let's make this happen. So I go in right before intermission, and I tell everyone, thank you all so much for coming. We appreciate the Renegade Wrestling Alliance coming to our Mount Pleasant neighborhood. We hope to have you all back soon. Enjoy the show, everyone. Then their champion comes out, says a few insulting remarks, and then I get met with a body slam. <laughs> and so I want to be clear. This is all supposed to be a one-off, right? <laughs> like, this is literally just designed for one show, one pop from the crowd. And so I get body slammed. The crowd goes crazy. And apparently after that happened, the RWA saw a spike in likes on Facebook, YouTube views, and Twitter followers. And the promoter was like, all right, we are on to something here. So he asked me, would you be willing to come back to our next show and continue your feud with our world champion? And I said, of course. So ever since then, it's been history. I do want to reiterate, though, I started off as a quote-unquote good guy and eventually evolved into the dastardly heel that I am today. Huh. That's what I say about myself. No, <laughs> uh, no, that that is that is so cool, uh, and it. I I think the thing that I love about it is highlighting that how small our communities really are, and how close connections really are. Um, that's amazing. What. When you're not being a legislator, what are your hopes, dreams, aspirations? I mean, more than anything else, I, I've really come to value, like, again, just a lot of personal time in regards to, like, spending time with my cat. Hey. Again, being able to, like, <laughs> yeah, my little cat, Mochi. Again, I, as shared before, I have a deep passion for professional wrestling. It's something that I never thought in a million years I'd ever have an opportunity to be in the ring. You know, so I attend trainings twice a week. I have to drive all the way up to Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And it's something I feel very, very passionate about. And I've increased the amount of times that I go to the gym on a weekly basis in order to take care of myself, uh, both from like a socio-emotional standpoint, and obviously physically as well. And more than anything else, what I want to ensure just throughout with my time, my life is being able to maintain like a close connection with my family. Uh, my mom lives in California, which is where I originally grew up in a very rural community in a small town. 
So I make sure to call her every day, make sure to have those conversations, keep in touch with my sister. And that's just something I really value, especially because, again, I don't have a ton of family over within the New England region. But a lot of the friends, I call them family. You know, a lot of my close friends that I spend the weekends talking things that aren't related to politics about. And that's what gives me a lot of hope. That's what gives me a lot of time to like spill the distress and reflect on things outside of the legislature and just external responsibilities as well. Mm. Now, I, uh, I, I think that's one of the things that I, uh, I'm glad to hear as young people in politics it's often all a lot all the time and it's nice to be able to I just turned 29 so I've been reflecting a lot where I'm like man I only got a few more years where I can be irresponsible and people will be like ah he's just young um but no that's dope um out of curiosity what are the big you mentioned some of them, but are there any other big policies you're thinking of launching or talking about this year? Yes. Increasing our minimum wage towards the pathway of $20 hey. and then adjusting for inflation thereafter. Uh, we're in a situation right now where, again, wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. More often than not, it's people earning the minimum wage that's feel the brunt of inflation. That's feel the brunt of rising costs within their utilities and their groceries. So I want to make sure that we're prioritizing what it looks like to increase wages for everyone. While at the same time, also expanding investments in our Medicaid program. Because one of the main issues we have is folks will be enrolled in Medicaid, but they can't find a doctor because the reimbursement rates are so low. So what's the point of having access to Medicaid if you can't even see your primary care physician for a physical? You can't see a specialist because they don't want to accept someone who has Medicaid. So the reality is it requires public investments. And those are some of the priorities I'm going to be working on this year, in addition to just ensuring that, again, when we look at some of the different realities related to housing, that we're doing more to be able to provide people the opportunity to have accessible homes that they can actually afford. And so there's a lot of, again, intersectional issues that all impact one another. But the reality is we just need to get to a point where we have a decent standard of living, again, regardless of one's occupation. And we are far from that right now, which is a scary reality. No, that that is definitely true. The now y'all raised uh, your minimum wage to fifteen. Was that uh, a ramp up, or was that straight to fifteen that y'all raised it to? It was a ramp up. It took years of advocacy, and even then, we're not getting to fifteen until twenty twenty five. Wow. Which is a, yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow, you know, because we're still two years out from having a wage that I would argue is far from a living wage at this point in time. So our fight for 15, as we know, started back in 2009. Taking 14 years for a lot of states to even start adopting that measure. And we're behind in Rhode Island compared to Connecticut and Massachusetts. Massachusetts is already talking about getting to a $20 minimum wage, which is what I want us to aspire for. I know Connecticut has already started adjusting for inflation. And again, the reality is we just need to get to a sustainable point where annually we know that workers are going to be in for an increase in their wages because they deserve it. Because the reality is that companies are profiting at levels that they've never seen before, yet the workers aren't experiencing that at all. 
um it is you know it it it, it and i'm guessing that didn't include tip workers of course i mean right now we have an abysmal tip minimum wage below four dollars i think it's time we move towards phasing out the tip minimum wage and ensuring that normal tipped workers earn the full minimum wage and tips on top of that yeah it uh it, it, it is nice to see that technology has encouraged tipping where anytime i go anywhere to swipe my card it's like hey do you want to give a tip um but i think to the point that you made right like if we're not raising every if we're not lifting all boats it's hard for people to chip in where they can uh and show that that mutual solidarity um it's a hispanic heritage month um it is a month that is complicated uh do you have any thoughts feelings reflections i really want to use this month to empower our latino communities across rhode island especially we have such diverse communities coming from all walks of life my family comes from mexico my neighbors come from guatemala i have other neighbors who come from the dominican republic puerto rico reality is we have a very diverse latino community and so during hispanic heritage month again one of my priorities is how can we bring our communities together to celebrate our different cultures Mm. but also recognize that collectively we have a voice right we don't have to box ourselves off to whatever country our families originated from regardless every culture is unique and different in their own ways but i think some of our struggles are also very similar and so i want to ensure that our latino communities feel appreciated and supported throughout the month but not even just throughout the month of september and october right but that it's something that's done year-round and a large part of that is ensuring that our local bodegas our panaderias are being supported along the way right our local businesses but also our local advocacy groups as well because they're often the ones that go underfunded in comparison to their white counterparts so how can we ensure that the latino policy institutes receiving the amount of support they need similar to progreso latino these are a lot of organizations that know the struggle firsthand they hire locally and there's a reason why they're on the ground working directly with our communities Mm. now i i i completely agree i uh i i always have mixed feelings about the heritage months because history is just so problematic and hard at the same time i think it allows us opportunities to come together and think and collaborate about how do we not think about ourselves and how do we think about others and how do we, you know, be empathetic to others? Um, so beautifully said, um, as we near the end of our time, I always get sad when it's, I'm like, man, an hour just like goes by like that. Um, I get to ask my three favorite questions, which is one, how do people contact you? How do people stay connected to you how do people follow you so i make it as simple as possible i am at david morales ri on the following social media platforms being twitter instagram and facebook by accessing those platforms you get an opportunity to keep up with some of the legislative work i'm doing 
And I want to be clear, a lot of this legislation and advocacy efforts happen well beyond just the months of January through June. Uh, it's something I'm very conscientious about working all year round. Even before we got on this call, I had just met with one of our local unions to talk about how we can increase pay for our frontline DHS workers. Hey. So this work is, again, constant. It's year round in order to ensure that we're maximizing those six months we have in the legislature. At the same time, we had to keep up with some of the wrestling I'm up to. For example, our next RWA show will be on September 29th. And if you go on my page right now, I would argue that I just put forward and posted the most thrilling promotional video that will excite you for the 29th. I think it's a movie trailer, in my opinion. If you have a chance to watch Justin, please let me know your thoughts. It's less than two minutes. I make sure to keep them short, but it drives emotion. That's what you want out of your promos. Um, that That's going to be the first thing once I get out the studio. <laughs> um. <laughs> My second favorite question to ask people um, is, you know, what is a favorite song that they have? I, I believe that through music we can connect. And so what is a song that says, I am David Morales, and that people can listen to and be like, you know, that was a dope conversation. Kendrick Lamar, I. Ooh, that that is that's a classic right there uh and if y'all know it you know it goes i love myself i love myself because i think it goes a long way for self-empowerment mm-hmm. self-empowerment while also having very deep thoughts and reflections as you <laughs> as you chant along to the tune and the melody so it's like a mix of both and that's one thing i really love about that song and something i can go back and listen to well, I, um, you know, I appreciate you taking the time out to, to be with us, to be in community. Um, I said three questions and I lied to myself cause I only had two. <laughs> um, David Morales, thank you so much for being in community with us. Um, until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. And thank you again for the invitation, Justin. I hope you all take care. Much solidarity and love. Hey. Yeah. Yo, yo, time to play and leave it. All right. See you at the airport. I'm leaving on the next plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you know I'll never go. Even though you know I will, I'm a traveling man.